If you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, if you have the blue pew Bibles, it's on page 981. Continuing in our series in Philippians, come now to the closing of this final section. But before we come to God's word, let us ask for his help in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it instructs us and teaches us. And above all, that it shows us Christ. So we pray this morning that you would let us see him. We ask all of this in his beloved name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, reading down through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God, for it is perfect. Now, as we think about God's word, most of us intuitively understand that as God speaks, there are a lot of rules and commands that he gives to us that we are to live by. 613 Old Testament commands summed up by the Ten Commandments that we all know well. Those Ten Commandments summed up by the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. Jesus tells us that he did not come to abolish that law, but to fulfill it. He told his disciples in the Great Commission to make disciples, to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. The New Testament is full of instructions for how the church ought to live. Even in our contemporary society, which has a shrinking and diminishing understanding of what the Bible is, of the, the grand story of the scriptures, of the characters in it. Even with that shrinking understanding, our, our society knows one thing, that the Bible is full of rules. Throughout the history of the church, 
there have been great attempts to explain what place these rules have in the life of the Christian. Everything from antinomianism, which that's a big word, it's simply anti, meaning against. Namos is the Greek word for law, so anti-law. So these antinomians that say, look, look, the law, all of the commandments, those, those don't matter anymore. Those have passed away. What we focus on is the grace of Jesus and, and knowing him. That, that's all you really need to be concerned about is knowing God's grace, that you're saved by Christ's work. Or the church has responded with the other extreme, with legalism. And not the way we typically use that word. A lot of people use the term legalism, just describing someone who's more theologically conservative than they are. You say, oh, you think I need to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? You're such a legalist about that. That's, that's not what legalism properly understood means. No, legalism means that you are trusting in your obedience to Christ to be the means by which you are saved. Legalism says that you do enough good deeds that adds to your merit, that adds to your account until you get enough good points to get into heaven. Those are the two extremes at which the church has attempted to understand God's law. But taking obedience seriously is not legalistic. And we understand that the Bible tells us that we need to take obedience seriously. What, what is legalistic is thinking that your obedience earns your salvation. That, that is legalism. We want to guard against that. But we don't guard against it with antinomianism and thinking. You don't talk about the law at all. So that, it seems that within the church that in order to combat one extreme, we, we tend to try to approach it with the other. Well, you're, you're too much of a legalist? Well, you need to chill out. Well, you're a rotten sinner? Well, then you need to start obeying God so that he'll love you. That, that's sort of a default operating position when it comes to those two extremes. And there's a third way, and I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it in his book, The Whole Christ. He says that anti Nomianism on one hand and legalism on the other are not so much antithetical to each other as they are both antithetical to grace. This is why Scripture never prescribes one as the antidote for the other. Rather, grace, God's grace in Christ, in our union with Christ, grace is the antidote to both. You want to combat the legalist who's trying to earn his way to heaven? Well, you remind them that they're saved by grace. You want to combat someone who doesn't think that how they live really matters? You remind them that they are saved by grace. And it is that very grace-centric way of thinking that is displayed here in Philippians chapter 2. We'll see in just a few minutes that the church is called to be obedient to God 
with salvation as our source and joy as our motivation. That is our outline for this morning. Now, as we walk through that, I want to try to explain what I mean by that. And undoubtedly, we we dive in verse 12, probably given many of you a theological headache. What does Paul mean? Work out your salvation. Now, I'm going to deal with the relationship between works and salvation in a moment. But I think in order to understand what Paul means, it's going to be helpful to begin look at the broader context and what he's talking about. And first, we want to understand that when he says, work out your salvation, this is just another way of him describing Christian obedience. And if you've been around Good Shepherd for a while, you know, as you come to these difficult passages, I like to look at the big picture, the broader context. So, So what Paul is doing here in verses 12 through 18 is essentially bringing to a close an argument that he has been making since his opening introduction. Every verse in this passage, and probably every clause in this passage, has a corresponding verse or clause that goes along with it in the previous chapters. So Paul is more or less summarizing everything that he's already said throughout this letter. And what's his argument been? What has he been saying to the Philippians? Well, it begins in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, as we've read on throughout this letter, we saw the main application of this filling of righteousness that had a lot to do with the disagreements and the quarreling that was beginning to happen within the church at Philippi. There's divisions arising among the believers, and so Paul is trying to address those divisions. And we don't know the exact nature of those disagreements, but I suspect that whatever the division was, it's emerging as a result of the increased persecution that the church is facing and how the church ought to deal with that persecution, how they ought to respond to the increased hostility. Pressure today that we probably know a little bit about. There are debates within the broader church of how do we respond to increased hostility towards the gospel. And so Paul is writing to them to help them make sense of the persecution they're experiencing and how to think about it and how to respond to it. And there's three trains of thought that he gives that are meant to direct the way they think, to help them pursue the obedience that he's calling them to. First, he tells them, hey, don't worry about me and the persecution I'm facing and my imprisonment. This has actually served to advance 
the gospel. And, and even if I get put to death, that's gain. That's a good thing. Says, so if I get to survive, that's also gain. That's a good thing because I get to stay and, and work and contend for your joy and progress in the faith. So that's the first train of thought he went down. Don't worry about me. Second, he's shown them that their own perseverance and their unity in that perseverance will serve as a testimony to their opponents and will serve to advance the gospel as well. So saying, look at my faithfulness, you model that, and the gospel will prevail and go forward through you also. And third, in the verses immediately preceding the ones we just read, in 1 through 11, Paul holds out Christ. He shows them the example of Christ's humility. So they would set aside their own pride, their own selfishness, and that they would remain united together. So, so that's the, the train of thought he's been going down, wanting them to grow in obedience to what he's calling them to do. So then he gets to verse 12 and he says, therefore, my beloved, he's connecting everything he's already said to now this command that he's giving them about working out their salvation. So that's the context. But notice also the specific way that he states the command. He has told them, therefore, even though I've been present with you and you've been obeying, even more so now that I'm gone, he says, work out your salvation. That's another way of saying obey, right? He's just saying, if this, then this. If you've obeyed while I'm with you, now that I'm gone, continue to obey. So it's important for us to see that Paul isn't saying anything new in verse 12 that he hasn't already said. The phrase, work out your salvation, is simply longhand for the command for obedience. Nevertheless, you'll probably say that is a very interesting way to put that command. I would say you're right. So, so what does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation? Well, some of that is going to depend on how you translate the word that is given for work out. And there's probably three of you that care. The Greek word is katergazomai. Now we can put that away. I will not mention it again. But that word is used 22 times throughout the New Testament. 20 times it is used by the Apostle Paul. Now, sometimes it is used to describe an act that accomplishes or fulfills some purpose or is producing something. You're working to, to make something happen. Your actions have an effect. So I'll give you some examples. Romans 15 verse 18, Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Accomplished. It's doing something. Or Romans 5 Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Romans 4, 15 says the law brings wrath. So you see, there's a way in which this word is used where you're doing something that is 
having an effect. It's accomplishing something else. So about nine times in the New Testament, the Bible uses this word in this way. Ten times, we're not going just by the weight of usage, but ten times it is used that is simply to describe the action of doing something. So I'll give you some examples of this usage. Romans 2 verse 9. Paul says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Does. Romans 7 15, Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. So that word actions and all throughout Romans 7 where Paul talks about doing, it's usually this word here. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So there's not an action necessarily having an effect. It's just talking about doing an action. So the question for us this morning is, is Paul calling us to obey in order to accomplish our salvation or are we obeying and doing our salvation that has already been accomplished for us? Now, I hope you can understand the difference. It's really a question of saying, what role do we have in the production of our salvation? In the first instance, it's our good works that produce salvation. You, you work, and the effect is that your salvation comes out of that. The, the second option is that our salvation that God has given to us becomes the source of our good works. Now, there are some evangelical scholars who, who think the word is more of the first usage. And they say when here Paul talks about working out your salvation, the salvation that he has in mind is more of a, a corporate communal salvation of, of the body. He's directing this to an individual church, and he's telling the church itself corporately to work out their salvation, and their salvation means more of a communal blessing, that there's a well-being amongst the people because they're living in unity. So there's a number of scholars that take that approach. There's some weight to that, but what I find difficult about that interpretation so Paul never uses the word salvation to mean a corporate blessing. It doesn't mean he can't have used it here in that way, but he nowhere else uses this word for salvation corporately. It's always individually. He uses it to describe our eternal vindication and our communion with Christ. Second, Paul has just finished describing Christ's work of humility in which he became obedient to death on the cross and now says, therefore, work out your salvation. It seems that he has very much in mind the atonement when he tells us this instruction. And he also has in mind who is responsible for carrying out this work for carrying out and accomplishing and finishing the atoning work. Guess what? It's not us. Nowhere in any of Paul's letters does he ever give a hint that salvation comes from 
us. It is always a work of God in Christ. Let's just stick with the examples that he gives in the letter to the Philippians and see what does Paul mean and how does he understand who is working for our salvation. So Philippians chapter 3, and Paul's highlighting all of the good works that he used to trust in and have confidence in when he was a Pharisee. And then in verse 8, he says, For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all of those things, all of that confidence, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So righteousness is from God, and it comes through faith, not through working out anything. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, speaking of the resurrection, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So there's a call to perseverance. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So who's the actor there? Christ has made Paul his own. Philippians 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who's beginning the works? It's God. Who's bringing it to completion? It's God. And then chapter 2, verse 13, that we've already read. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it seems clear that Paul is saying that you're called to obey, to work, to persevere, to press on, to strive. These are all biblical words. We're not eliminating those. But we do all of that in light of the salvation that God has already accomplished in us through Christ. You work with confidence and endurance because God is at work in you both transforming your will so that your desires align with his and empowering you to carry out the new desires that he is giving you. When he says, work out your salvation, he's simply saying, do your salvation. Be who you are. God has done a work in you. Now respond to that and do what God has done. Obedience to God is a response to the grace of God. We work because God has already worked in us. He has initiated and fulfilled and accomplished and secured our salvation. Therefore, we work out of that. So we see salvation is our source for holiness in the sense that Our obedience stems from what God has already done for us in Christ. But again, even throughout this letter, we understand that grace does not negate obedience. We're not antinomians that think holiness doesn't matter. See, we recognize the awesome wonder that it is to have God Almighty dwelling in us, working in us to produce 
good fruit. This is why Paul qualifies his statement that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We don't take this reality lightly. We should possess an awe and a wonder and be struck silent sometimes at the miracle of our salvation that God has wrought in us. And we respond with thanksgiving and with faithfulness. That, that's the argument that Paul is making. He's also making a subtle argument not to be like the Israelites who had all of the external benefits of earthly salvation, but who then presumed upon God's grace and ultimately rejected him. That's a story that we are well familiar with. All of the language that Paul uses in verses 14 and 15 are echoing the story of Israel, who you well know, they're they're rescued by God, and he calls them to walk blamelessly before him. They're rescued out of slavery in Egypt, and as they make their way into the wilderness, they begin to grumble as they head through the desert. Think After all of their disobedience, all of their grumbling, all of their murmuring and subsequent faithlessness, Moses describes them as a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul's saying, you know that story, Philippians, and I want the exact opposite for you, that you would experience your own release from bondage to sin and that you would follow the Lord that you'll love him, that you will worship him, that you will respond in faithfulness, that you'll put away your idols of pride and selfishness, that you would live like Christ. That's what Paul is calling them to. Not to be like the Israelites who received this grace and rejected it. That they would receive this grace and respond to it. And Paul borrows from Daniel 12, which says that those who are wise shall shine like the lights of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Just as Daniel is reminding the Israelites about the last days and the reward for those who remain faithful to God, Paul is looking ahead to the coming of Christ to encourage the Philippians that they would continue their pursuit of holiness as well, that they would not be like the surrounding culture and and dive back into darkness, but that they would actually let their light shine into that darkness. Once again, as Paul calls them to be these shining lights, we can't help but see the theme that has been on his mind throughout this letter, the theme of the gospel and salvation of the lost. He sees the holiness of the Philippians not just as a response to God, but also as a means of leading unbelievers to Christ as well. The more the church looks like Christ, the more she will shine into the dark world. To God's holy ones, stand as a marker in the darkness to lead the way home to a lost culture. So we hear this phrase that Paul uses, stars in the sky. And we think of, oh yeah, stars. I don't know about stars. 
I go out in the night and there's something pretty to look up at. But to the ancient Greeks, the, the moon and the stars were much more than something to fill them with awe and wonder. They were a source of, of comfort. They were a source of guidance. If you were lost at sea or in the wilderness and it's a dark and cloudy night, you're going to be full of fear. You've got no idea where you're going, no idea what's around you. Unless you have a lamp or some fire, you can't see three feet in front of your face if it's a dark night. But when the moon and the stars come out, you would have hope. So you finally know your way back home. You can finally see what's around you. The world is lost in that darkness. Can't see three feet in front of its face. The church is called to shine into that darkness to lead them home. And it is very tempting as the culture grows more hostile and distance itself even further from the church. It's tempting to get discouraged, to think, well, we must be doing something wrong. The church is shrinking. What's happening? Maybe we need to soften some of our sharp edges that the culture finds offensive so that they'd be more likely to believe the gospel and come back home. Now listen, if you are a jerk, you have my permission to stop being a jerk. That's, that's not what it means to shine as a light in the dark world. But we are called not to diminish our light, to try and gain the acceptance of those who are walking in the dark. What you win the world with, you will win the world too. The message you proclaim is the message that they will believe. The God that you proclaim is the God that they will come to. The church is not called to bring people into a watered-down, moralist Christianity where God is indifferent to how we live. We win the world to Christ, whose holiness shines into the darkness and into the darkest recesses of our hearts. That's the God we call the world to. Lovingly, graciously, patiently, not being jerks, but not watering down the standard that God calls us to either. We shine as lights into the dark. Lastly, we see that Paul wants us to be motivated to do all of this by joy. What joy? First, his own joy. Right? He says, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud, may boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Now, you hear that word boast or he's proud. Paul's not saying that he's boasting in himself and what he was able to accomplish on his own and his, his strength. We're not going to get into that. We know that he's boasting what Christ has done through him. Nevertheless, Paul's desire is for them to continue in the faith so that it would lead to his rejoicing. 
that he would get to have gladness and joy and happiness in their endurance and in their perseverance and that he could praise God for them. Think about Paul, the pastor, for a moment. It is hard work shepherding a flock. And yes, he's an itinerant preacher, but this is his beloved people. He, he has labored hard over the Philippians, spent long hours agonizing over what the sheep are going through, praying for God's people, walking with them in hardships and in trials, contending for their joy and for their faithfulness. Paul uses these images to, to express the, the great effort that he has expelled on their behalf. He uses the image of running a race and it's running to the point of exhaustion and that you're about to pass out, or of a farmer just laboring tirelessly day after day after day. It says, even as his life is literally being poured out and drained for the sake of these beloved brothers and sisters, saying, in the midst of all of that effort, he says, you Philippians need to hold fast. You need to keep running. And as long as they continue on that trajectory, Paul will rejoice. Because all of the sacrifice, all of the spending, all of the effort that he is giving, if they endure, it will all have been worth it. He would not have labored in vain. See, for Paul, I'd say for your pastors and for your elders, our desire in ministry isn't to have the, a life of ease, to do as little as work as possible and think, oh man, there's another fire I have to put out. No, that, that's not the goal. It is, the goal is working hard. The goal is not to gain the most prestige or the most fame. So all the other pastors in Kalamazoo talk about how great we are. The goal isn't that there would be no disagreements or that We'd lead a congregation without people asking us questions. The goal of pastoral ministry, of, of contending for the flock, for your pastors and for your elders, is this. It is to faithfully and to safely lead people into the kingdom. That's it. Help people get home. If we can do that, all of the labor, all of the effort will have been worth it. Obviously, I don't know what it's like to have a baby, but I imagine when I get to heaven, it will feel something like a mom who, after a long labor, finally gets to hold her baby for the first time. Just all of that work, and here's the result. It's what it will be like. One of my favorite verses, one of my main theme verses for pastoral ministries, 2 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 10, where Paul writes this, Therefore, I endure everything. This is including his execution that is forthcoming. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul does all of it. That God's people would get to have the salvation that he has promised them, that they would get to enjoy the glory of Christ for all eternity. That's why Paul is willing to be put to death and poured out 
for these people. That is why we labor. So Paul is willing to go to the grave for his beloved people if they will keep going. So it's one of the hardest things as a pastor, an elder, to watch a sheep wander. Watch when God's people don't persevere. When they make decisions that you know are going to be detrimental to their faith and you can't do anything about it. You see people that you love, that you've labored for, putting themselves in danger. That is crushing. So all we want is to obtain salvation, that you would get to enjoy Christ. So Paul doesn't want that for them. He wants them to continue in the faith so that he gets to rejoice with them for all eternity, even if it's going to cost him his life. He's rejoicing because then his life will have actually mattered. If they all desert the faith, then he thinks, what was this for? It was in vain. But if you continue, then he will rejoice. And he also wants to remind them that when he goes to be with the Lord, when his cup is finally empty, and when he is finally put to death, that they should rejoice with him as well. There should be no mourning and grieving that their pastor is gone. Because again, as he has already said, when he goes, he gets to go and be with the Lord. That Paul will have received the prize that he had hoped for. They would rejoice with him. And if they continue on, they will get to rejoice in that prize one day as well. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this long chapter and a half instruction on church unity with the call to obey, with the many calls to rejoice? Maybe we feel guilty that we, eh, we're not doing the best we can and maybe we'll be motivated for about seven minutes after church ends and then kind of slide back into our old habits. Maybe we'll just try a little harder next time. How, how do we actually grow in conformity to this command? How do we get more shiny as we shine in the darkness? How do we will and work for God's good pleasure? How do we do that? We do it by going to the gospel. Again, Paul wants their love to abound more and more and more. How? By them being filled with the knowledge and discernment of God's grace. He wants them to live worthy lives. How? Well, those lives are going to reflect the gospel of grace. He wants them to love and serve one another by remembering the way that Christ humbled himself in love and service to them. Again, over and over throughout this letter, Paul is showing you how. If you want to grow in holiness, it starts with growth in the, the knowledge, not just mental knowledge. Okay, yeah, I remember that verse. I, I know what it says, what it means, but to, to know and to experience, to have the knowledge sink into your hearts and know God's grace to you. That is the antidote 
for every disease of sin. If you want to do your salvation, as Paul tells us, you have to know the greatness of your salvation. You have to know that every one of your sins has been washed clean. You know that you have been adopted as children of God. You know that nothing can remove you from his family. You know that he is always expressing the fullness, the, the, the fullest sense of his love and affection towards you. And you know that all of that has been secured by Christ for all time. You, you know it, you, you savor it, you, can, you let it sink into your heart so that it actually grows your affections. And that's what leads you to obedience. You obey God because you believe that your salvation has been accomplished. And you obey God because you are looking forward to the everlasting joy that is with him. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we confess that we are half-hearted people most of the time. We pray that you would continue to work in us, transform our wills and our desires, help us to work for your good pleasure, for you are pleased with your people. Now we need your help, but you have given us what we need for this task in the gospel. So would you let your people know it better, cling to it more closely. Amen.